grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 4. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. If you need a Bible, there are these blue hardback Bibles. Uh, Turn to page 1021. Uh, If you're just joining us, we are in our Lenten series right now. Uh, Raise your hand if you helped at all, if you would, at the yard sale over this week. Raise your hand if you helped out. Thank you so much. Uh, We can't thank you enough. That's pretty amazing. I'm pretty sure that uh, close to 20,000 is a record. Is there anybody who can confirm that? Okay, Tom and, and John Lynn Saudi are confirming that as a record. That's pretty awesome. And uh, uh, if there are any teenagers in the room uh, that are still on the fence about whether or not to go to Mexico, I, I just want to encourage you to take courage. Um, the only thing that really matters in life is your relationship with the Lord and the lives of people that you invest in. Everything else is going to end up in a trash dump one day. Uh, it's the lives of people you invest in, and it's your relationship with the Lord. And so Mexico is a wonderful opportunity to invest in the lives of people. Uh, So with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at the uh, temptation of Jesus, but also a couple of other passages. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at the wilderness, the garden, the valley. With that in mind, let's read along. Uh, Look with me at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to go through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord from the gospel of Luke. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together? Holy Spirit, we ask uh, that you would give us insight into your word. Uh, Lord, that we would understand it and that we would follow Jesus and see everything that he has won on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, uh, my life changed when I was around the age of 15. It was, it was a wonderful day. It's etched into my memory, just like seeing gasoline below a dollar. It'll forever be in my memory, right? Uh, and what happens when you're 15? What happens when you're 15? Does anybody know? There was, there, yeah, it deals with driving. Very good, yes. And it turns out uh, my whole life up until the age of 15, I had been seeing incorrectly. And it was only when I needed to get my learner's permit that I went to the optometrist. And I got what? Some glasses. All right, for any, raise your hand if you wear glasses or contacts, right? Okay, so that's most of us in the room. Okay, do you remember the day you got your glasses? You may be nodding. I can't tell. My glasses aren't on right now. You're just a blur. (laughs) The day you get your glasses, you see differently. 
And I'm willing to bet the moment you put on glasses for the first time, there's something that you always saw differently as soon as you were driving home. And what was it? Anybody want to guess? It was the leaves on the trees. Anybody remember that moment? You were like, there are leaves, individual leaves that I can see. For all of you 2020 people out here with your privilege, just imagine seeing a tree and not really knowing what you see. It's terrifying. When you put it on, it's the beauty. You realize when you put on glasses for the first time that you're surrounded in a world of beauty. And you can look out the windows right now and and see the spring uh, things in bloom. Uh, Well, you know, that image, though, of being surrounded by beauty uh, is so seared into my memory. But of course, I mean, why did I get glasses when I was 15? Was it so that I could see the leaves on the tree and that I could have that sort of existential realization that the world is beautiful? No, I got glasses because as beautiful as this world is, I also got glasses because what? Because I was about to take a weapon and drive it around my neighborhood and try not to kill anybody with it. I needed to see that the world was not only beautiful, but full of danger. And the reason I needed to see clearly was so that I could see the world around me, right? And it was to realize that you and I, we we are surrounded by deadly things. Uh, So what I want to suggest to you is that uh, as we enter into uh, this Lenten sermon series, uh, each week we're going to be trying to see sin more clearly and see it for what it is. Uh, Of course, we're always going to try to see the clarity and the beauty of the gospel, But Lent, this season of 40 days before Easter, is really an opportunity for you and me to sort of step back, put the glasses back on, and get a survey of the dangers in this life. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if you want to understand life in the valley, you have to understand what happened in the wilderness, and you have to understand what happened in the garden. Uh, So if I had to really put an even finer point on it, if you were to put glasses on this morning... What I want you to see this morning is sin as three temptations, all right? Sin as three temptations. All right, so what's going on in the wilderness? Now, look with me at Luke chapter 4. We're introduced to Jesus and his famous temptation with Satan. Uh, The parallel passage to this is Matthew chapter 4. It's easy to remember the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is parallel to Luke in Luke chapter 4. And the passages are very similar, but they do a couple of different things. So what is it that Luke wants us to recognize? Well, Jesus has just been baptized in Luke chapter 3. And then there's this weird section about a genealogy. And then chapter 4 introduces us to Jesus going off into the wilderness. And look with me at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, right? We get that beautiful picture of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism, where the Son is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and then a voice from heaven says, Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased, right? We get this beautiful depiction of the triune God. Well, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit where? In the wilderness, And if you were here last year, you may vaguely remember that I preached a sermon called In the Wilderness, because that is the name of one of the books in the Bible. Uh, If you know the the first five books of the Bible, it goes like what? Genesis, then what? Exodus, Leviticus, then what? Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Numbers is where your Bible reading plan goes to die, right? The problem with it is don't get deterred. Numbers is just the English name for that book. The Hebrew name is Bab Midbar, which means what? In the wilderness. Tell me you wouldn't rather read a book called In the Wilderness versus Numbers. 
What happens in the wilderness? Well, the people are tested to see if they can really leave a life of slavery behind. And for 40 years, they are tested. And now Jesus, the true Son of God, the true Israel, goes where? In the wilderness. And he's there for how many days? 40 days. He's the fulfillment of all of the people of God. Just like they were in the wilderness for 40 years and they did not pass the test, now Jesus has come and gone right back to the wilderness, except he's going to pass the test in the wilderness. And what does he do when he's in the wilderness? Look at verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he did what? He ate nothing during those days. Matthew's gospel says it more clearly. It says he fasted for 40 days. It doesn't say whether or not he drank anything, but we do know that he did at least a partial fast. He gave up food for 40 days, and then only after those 40 days does Satan come to him in temptation. Uh, This is just a reminder that uh, this is where Christians were inspired uh, around the two and three hundreds to start fasting leading up to Easter. They were inspired in their imitation of Jesus's life to try to fast for 40 days leading up to Easter. And they get it from this very passage. Well, Jesus fasted for 40 days from food, so I'm going to try to do that same thing every year in imitation of him. But what is it that is going on in Jesus's temptation? Has anyone ever read this story and thought like, this doesn't sound like that, that very tempting. You know, some bread. I mean, come on. You know, who wants bread, right? Bread, and then the kingdoms of the world, and then to come down from the pinnacle of a temple. Uh, if you've read The Temptation of Jesus, it can seem very strange because you would think if I said, oh, hey, uh, I want to tempt you. You know what you should do? We should go up on top of the building and then jump off. You'd be like, nah, that's not really tempting to me. Well, it may, seem, it may seem very, very strange. What, is, what are the things that the devil tempts him with? It seems strange. Look at verse 3. The devil first tempts him and says, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. It's Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Uh, interesting that in the wilderness, Jesus goes to the sermon preparing the people of Israel for the wilderness. I mean, that's what Deuteronomy is. It was Moses' final sermon. Hey, before you go into the wilderness, here's some things to keep in mind before I die. And so Jesus now in the wilderness goes right back to the sermon on how to live in the wilderness. He quotes Deuteronomy. In fact, he quotes it three times in this passage. He keeps going right back to it. But why is it that Satan tries to get him to eat bread? Strange, right? Well, I guess he did fast for 40 days. Well, what's the second temptation? Look at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Jesus has offered the whole world, basically. You want whatever you want. I'll give you the the whole world. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. Third and final temptation is even more of that head-scratching, I don't know what's going on. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, right? The center of worship in Israel. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... You know, in Psalm 91, (laughs) Satan starts quoting Scripture back to Jesus. Oh, you like Scripture? I can repeat it too. 
He says, well, doesn't Psalm 91 tell you that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone? Doesn't God say that he'll deliver you if you jump off this building? (laughs) Jesus answered him, though, what? Quoting which book? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... Think about that. Jesus was tempted in every regard. Satan departed from him until an opportune time. So what's going on in the wilderness? Uh, Strange, right? Uh, Well, to really understand the Bible, the best guide to understand the Bible is what? The Bible. And, you know, when you look at the Bible, it's important to know that it is one book, But at another profound level, it is also 66 books that all testify to the same God of creation and to the same Savior. And so we don't just have one voice, the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit speaking through many, many witnesses, many, many prophets, and they all testify to the same thing. And so it's important to remember that the Old Testament was written over a thousand years before the New Testament was written, yet it all testifies to the same one true God. And so we can use the Bible to interpret the Bible because there are different men writing these texts to us testifying to the same truths. So what is going on in the wilderness? Well, I would suggest to you that the way to understand Jesus's three temptations And why those three temptations mean something to you is actually to go back to another temptation. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Helpfully, it's on page 3 of your Bible. Just page 3, go to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start to see a parallel between what Jesus is experiencing in the wilderness to what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. What's going on? In the garden. Well, Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, going through verse 7, tells us this Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Friend, my suggestion to you is that to understand how to find true life here in the valley, you've got to understand what's going on in the wilderness with Jesus. You've got to understand what's going on in the garden with Adam and Eve. You see, what's going on in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted, is Jesus is passing every test that we humans fail. And Jesus is the new man that has come to redeem all of humanity and to undo the works of the first man, Adam. 
Romans 5 says, by one man, sin entered our world. But by one man, the many will be made righteous. It's Romans chapter 5. What's going on in Jesus' temptation, and how is that at all like what's going on with the temptation of the fruit? Well, what I want to point you to, uh, first off, is that all good theology starts in Genesis And what we see in Genesis, if I could focus you on any one verse in this passage, I want you to look at verse 6. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis is worth its own sermon series. This whole passage is worth its own sermon. But I really want you to realize what verse 6 is establishing for you and me. Notice what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband. Did you notice that there are three ways that the fruit is described? There's three ways that the fruit is described. The first is what? She saw that it was what? Good for food. It would taste good. It would be pleasurable to eat. Then secondly, with her eyes, she sees what? It was a delight to the eyes, right? It was like a beauty. You ever, um, uh, what's, that, what's that kind of store with all the fine stuff in the front? A jewelry store, right? I walked by one the other day um, on the way to the fishing store, which has a different kind of thing in the windows. <laughs> you know, on the main street in town, you get that jewelry store, you look at it. And why do they put all the nice rings um, up front? so that you gaze at them, right? You want to possess them, right? I mean, that's how marketing works. You put the thing in front of somebody. You let them hold it in their hand, right? Why does God say don't touch it, right? Well, they know as soon as they get you behind the wheel and they give you a test drive, you're that much more likely to buy, right? And then, of course, the third way that it's described is on a different category. It's not just pleasurable to eat. It's not just something cool to possess, It appeals to something deeper in Eve, doesn't it? It says that the tree was desired to make one wise. You may hear that and realize that it appeals to pride. So what I want to suggest to you is that if all good theology starts in Genesis, what we see in Genesis 3 is every day of your life in the valley. Every day, you and I encounter three uh, primordial, (laughs) ancient, um, and ever-present temptations. And those temptations are simply what? Pleasure, possessions, and pride. Every sin can be tied to one of those things. Think about the seven deadly sins. Lust, gluttony, sloth pleasure. Think about pride. I mean, it's literally one of the seven deadly sins. It's pride. You know what pride leads us to? It leads us to anger because pride says what's most important is me and my way, and you're getting in my way, and it makes me angry. Angry people are proud people. And then what does the love of possessions create in us? Greed, greed, coveting. All the seven deadly sins find, you know, if the, if the seven deadly sins were like uh, a, a tree that would produce death, if it was deathly fruit, uh, the tree of death would be, have three roots, the love of money, the love of pride, and what? 
the love of pleasure. It was true for Adam and Eve. What was, what was she being appealed to? Pleasure? Possessions. It, would be, it was good to behold. I just want it. Well, what's wrong with that? I just want it. And then it could make me wise. Ooh, who doesn't want to be wise? Now let's go to the temptation in the wilderness. And how does Satan approach Jesus? He says, oh, you're hungry. You know, you should just live it up. Live for your pleasure. Make some bread. It's no big deal. He appeals to the need for pleasure. And then what's the second root sin? It's the love of possessions. And so what does Satan approach the second Adam with? He says, well, I got Adam with, with the fruit. That was easy. Uh, okay, so let me approach you with some pleasurable stuff. Okay, that didn't work. Um, I mean, all I offered them was a piece of fruit. Goodness gracious, I've got to up my game for the Son of God. He says, you know what? I'll, I'm going to go all in. I'm putting all the poker chips on the table. I'll give you the whole world if you worship me. What more could you want to possess than the whole world? And that didn't work. And so then Satan approaches Jesus and he says, let me just appeal to your pride. Don't you want people to know who you are? I mean, you're the son of God. Don't you want people to see who you truly are? And so where does he take Jesus? He takes him to the epicenter of worship in the world, the focal point of the presence of God. He takes him up on top of the building. He says, just just descend down gloriously. Dude, the people are going to go crazy. They're always worshipers there. Man, if you ever, if you have an ounce of pride in you, man, this is going to just fan that into flame because they're just going to eat that up. I mean, could you imagine a man floating down from the temple? Goodness gracious, you know, we'll have, you'll have all the praise and adoration you ever want. You see, there's a direct link between the three primordial temptations of the first Adam, the first man, and the second man. And then what I want to encourage you to think about is every temptation you and I face are just downstream of those three temptations. Uh, a, a sermon of mine would not be complete unless I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So uh, I read a wonderful little book called Temptation by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said these words, which I love. He says, the Bible is not a book of edification. It's not a, it's not a book of good moral stories, <laughs> telling us of many stories of man's temptations and their overcoming. <laughs> to be precise, the Bible tells only two temptation stories. The temptation of the first man and the temptation of Christ. That is the temptation which led to man's fall and the temptation that led to Satan's fall. All other temptations in human history have to do with these two stories of temptation. And then Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, either we are tempted in Adam or we are tempted in Christ. Either the Adam in me is tempted, in which case I fall, or the Christ in me is tempted in which case Satan is bound to fall. You see, friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you know intuitively that Jesus Christ has come to do what you and I never could. You and I could never face the three temptations. Now, Adam and Eve couldn't, and neither could you and I. I mean, Oscar Wilde said it better than anybody. I can resist anything except... Temptation. 
I don't resist anything except temptation. That's what makes it a temptation. You see, but the story of the Bible suggests to you and me that we are all the descendants of the same parents, Adam and Eve, and we all bear the image of God, and yet we all fall in sin because of Adam and Eve, and we bear the family resemblance. You know, we're all carrying on the same family tradition, which is why Jesus has come to undo the works of the devil and to succeed where you and I fail. Uh, You know, when I think about how you and I, you know, really resemble our family, I always think back to that great theologian, uh, Hank Williams Jr. Uh, If you know him, he's a wonderful theologian, very insightful in life, and uh, in his famous country song, uh, Family Tradition, I think he sums it up pretty well. He says, Lordy, I have loved some ladies, and I have loved Jim Beam, and they have both tried to kill me in 1973. When the doctor asked me, son, how did you get in this condition? I said, hey, Sawbones, I'm just carrying on an old family tradition, right? We're all the children of Adam and Eve. We're all carrying on the same family tradition. It's the love of pleasure. It's the love of possessions. And it's the love of pride. And it's as old as time. But friends, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to undo the works of the devil. He said no to temptation. He passed the test in the wilderness. And then he crushed the serpent's head underneath his foot. He took the punishment of our sins and came back alive on the third day. And then the amazing thing, friends, is that if you know that to be true, Jesus also promises that the same spirit that descended on him that was with him in the wilderness, that raised him from the dead, now dwells in you by faith in his name. So that means, friends, that you and I, in the face of temptation, left to ourselves, we're always going to say no. I can resist anything except temptation, right? I'm going to continue on the family tradition of Jim Beam and women and Lordy knows what else, unless Christ has redeemed you and brought you into a new family tradition in which you are no longer in Adam, you are in Christ. And the Spirit in you empowers you to want and to will different things so that you don't want to live for this world. You see the world for what it truly is. You know, in this link with Adam now go back to Luke chapter 4 if you can. This link with Adam, I think, is exactly what Luke is trying to get us to see, that Jesus is the victorious one. If you notice in Luke chapter 3 and 4, there's a lot of similarities between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke in this section. I mean, they even Matthew 4 is the temptation and so is Luke 4. But what's really interesting, if you read Luke, is that after Jesus gets baptized... Luke is like, hey, pause, pause the story. Uh, Jesus just got baptized. He's about to go in the wilderness, but pause. I got to tell you a genealogy real fast. And if you're just reading the Bible, like, oh, another genealogy. Lord have mercy. And then you read it and you're like, okay, that had no point. But what's really interesting, if you were to read Matthew and then compare it to Luke, is you may know that those genealogies are a little different. In fact, they go in reverse order. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham, David, goes down, ends with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But what's interesting is Luke's goes like that. 
Look at the genealogy of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 23. It starts off with Jesus, then it goes to Joseph, then it goes to his dad, his dad, and it goes all the way up. And then where does it end? Look at verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of whom? Adam, the son of God. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness. Luke wants you to see that Jesus has come to undo all the failures of all the people that have gone before us. By one man, Adam, sin entered the world. But by one man, the many can be made righteous by faith, by his one act of obedience. You see, friends, those three primordial temptations, pleasure, possessions, pride. Friends, it's a long story of failure after failure after failure until Christ comes and he succeeds. The question is, is whose family tree are you a part of? Are you carrying on the tradition of Adam or are you carrying on the tradition of Christ? Are you seeing yourself in him? So what, is this, what does this mean? Let me sort of wrap up. You know, there's one other verse I want you to realize, and I think it shows us how to live in the valley. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, uh, it's page 1,211, you'll notice again that John, a different writer, also testifies to this truth. Remember, the Bible is multiple witnesses testifying to the same truth. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he tells Christians living in this world, Christians like you and me living in the valley, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it comes, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Where do you think John is getting that list? What's the desire of the flesh? Living for pleasure. What's the desire of the eyes? Possessions. Owning things. And then what's the pride of life? Well, it's just simply pride. And John says that's not what real life is about. (laughs) That's a lie. That's the oldest trick in the book. That's what Eve and Adam fell for. Don't fall for those things. Everything you love, unless it's the Lord and other people, it's all going away one day. So how do we move forward? Well, uh, you know, this is a season of Lent. Uh, Historically, Christians have spent this season uh, doing three specific things. They've spent extra time praying. They've spent extra time giving to the poor. And they've spent extra time fasting. And what's really interesting, if you reflect on those sort of spiritual disciplines, is that the reason Christians would fast during Lent is so that they would combat the dangers of pleasure, of giving over to things like gluttony and lust and sloth. How do you train yourself in this life to not just be controlled by your desires? Well, you fast. And you train yourself not to be tempted by those things and controlled by them. And how do you combat pride and anger? Well, you can pray for your enemies. In fact, you should be praying even more for those with whom you're angry. That's what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for those uh, who persecute you. Love your enemies. And then, of course, how do you combat the, the tendency to be sucked in by greed and coveting? 
I mean, to this day, I have to echo Tim Keller. I've never, ever once had a Christian testify that they are greedy or struggle with greed, ever. It's like the thing that we can't see. You know what it is? It's, it's the tree leaves that you and I don't see, right? But what if you saw rightly? And how do you combat greed and coveting? Well, the Christian practice is to give to the poor. And what's beautiful is all three of those practices show up in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, when you give to the poor, when you fast. Those three spiritual disciplines are right there. And what if they combated these spiritual dangers? Uh, Well, friends, I've gone past my time. I just want to give you an invitation uh, to see what happened in the garden and what happened in the wilderness. And uh, maybe to spend this Lent season reflecting on what true life looks like in the valley. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the strength that it gives us. Uh, Lord, I pray for myself as well as everyone in this room that you would give us eyes to see that which is truly life. Lord, I pray that we would not fall into the temptations of just owning things and possessing them and not making much of ourselves and our pride. And Lord, I pray that you would save us from living for just earthly pleasures. Lord, we thank you that all good things come from your hand. And Lord, we pray that we would love them rightly as gifts from you. Lord, help us to walk in repentance this Lent season. And Lord, we thank you for the hope of Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.